0: What do you hope for? Let that come to mind for a moment because we worship a God who fulfills hopes. It's okay to bring those hopes, even the big ones, the seemingly impossible ones to him because he fulfills hope. And in fact one of Jesus' own disciples said this, it's where that line comes from, living hope. He said that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection, of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray now and ask God to show us this hope together this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift that it is to be together and to worship you, to proclaim the truth that you have given us hope in your own son, Jesus Christ, as he conquered death and defeated the grave to give us the promise that we can, in fact, be with you forever. Lord, show us your hope this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, hope means to cherish a desire with anticipation. Hope looks forward with to something which isn't here yet and gets excited about it. There's an expectation for it. Hope awaits something eagerly. That is what hope is, and all of us have hopes. We all hope for something, and it might be something big, like what you thought about a moment ago before we prayed. It might be something that maybe doesn't seem so big, but nevertheless, you still get excited about it. Maybe for you, it's thinking about that day very soon when you're going to go into your email account and type these words, I am out of the office. For urgent matters, please contact so-and-so. For you, it's the hope of a vacation. And I bet for those of us who have vacations coming up this summer, there's probably even specific hopes that you look forward to having while you're away, right? Maybe it's the special time with loved ones or the chance to, to go someplace new or try something new. Or maybe for you, it's simply the hope to slow down and read a good book. Anybody looking forward to that this summer? Just as an aside, it would be so good for us if we all decided to do that, am I right? Now maybe that's not your thing. Maybe you don't get excited about reading a book and I can relate to you. In fact, the summer before ninth grade, my English teacher, Mrs. Esch, assigned us a list of books to read And I didn't know much as an eighth, soon-to-be ninth grader, but this much I knew, I was not about to ruin my summer vacation with that long list of books. Can anybody relate? Okay, Okay. (laughs) all right. I get you. (laughs) But nevertheless, my sense of duty and responsibility kicked in, and I still remember the day that I opened up the most daunting one of them all, the Scarlet Letter. And I wrestled with this book and I and my English expertise determined that this book was just too outdated, its language was, was irrelevant anymore, and I just knew I couldn't finish this book. So what did I do? Well, I considered all my options, put them out on the table before me and I said to myself, surely a man can make his way in the world without the ninth grade. <laughs> that was my conclusion back then. Well, things have changed since the ninth grade, and now I actually really appreciate it and look forward to reading good books. This summer I've got a few lined up. And one of the things I love about reading is the opening line. And I love it because in just a few short words, it's the author's very first opportunity to hook you, to draw you in, and instill in you the hope that this is going to be good. I'm sure if we were to, to talk, there might be some, uh, some of you who have a favorite book or a favorite opening line. And what I want to do now is let's have some interaction, some participation. I'm going to give you a famous opening line, and if you know the book that it comes from, just shout it out, okay? Let's try this. Here it goes. Here's the first one. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick. That was kind of a softball. All right, here's another one. Let's see if you know this one. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and prejudice, here we go, all right. Let's do one more. A long time ago. Star Wars, yep. I I cheated on that one a little bit. Try to resist the, the temptation to be humming John Williams in your head now, but it's a good opening line. You see the power of the opening line, right? A few years ago, an author named Stephen King. Stephen King is a prolific author. He's written over 350 million books that have been sold. Uh, It's safe to say he knows a thing or two about writing. Well, The Atlantic magazine interviewed him about the importance of the opening line, and here's his response. He said, There are all sorts of theories and ideas about what constitutes a good opening line, but there's one thing I'm sure about. An opening line should invite the reader to begin the story. It should say, listen, come in here. You want to know about this. That's the power of the opening line. And now let me ask you, have you ever looked, and I mean really looked, at the opening line of the New Testament?" Have you ever looked at Matthew 1-1, the first gospel, the very first account of Jesus' life in our Bible, and considered how that book opens and why it opens the way it does? That's what we're going to do together this morning, and we're going to do it for a couple of reasons. One is that, just like every good line, it gives us hope that this is going to be good. But not just by looking forward. It does do that. It looks forward to a future hope that will one day be fulfilled, but it also looks back to an ancient hope, the hopes of the people of Israel. And it shows them that in Jesus Christ, those hopes have been fulfilled. So that's the first reason we're going to look at this opening line together today. But the second is this, that the people of Israel had hopes, but they weren't just unique to them as a people group. In fact, the three hopes that are contained in the opening line of Matthew 1.1, I'm going to submit to you today are the same hopes that we have today, deep down in our hearts. And for us, 2,000 years later, those hopes are still fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is what we're going to see together this morning. So without further ado, let's look at this opening line of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1. Here it is. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now look, I know at first glance, this probably doesn't seem like a groundbreaking opening line. I mean, genealogies are not typically your most fascinating form of literature, right? These are lists of dead people. But stick with me for a second, because we can rest assured that Matthew didn't intend to bore his readers. We can rest assured that he chose each word in this opening line carefully for a purpose. And so that makes us ask the question, why? Why has he chosen to open his gospel with these three names? We're going to look at them individually because within each of these names is contained a hope that the nation of Israel would have had and a hope that I believe we still share today. So we're going to look at those together. And I want to make this personal because we are not the people of Israel 2,000 years ago, but we still have hopes. You might have thought of a hope a few moments ago before we prayed. Let that hope come back into your mind. And now imagine that a messenger has come to you and has said, that hope, that thing you've been hoping for and praying for, and that desire which you await with eager anticipation, that hope is fulfilled. It's yours. The wait is over. Here it is. That's something a little bit like what the people might have experienced upon reading this first line back then. So let's Let's look at these three hopes together, one at a time, beginning with the first one. And it's contained with the very, uh, in in the two words there, Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been around church for a while, then you're used to seeing these words. And when you see them, they probably appear like a full name, first name, last name, Jesus Christ. But back then, Christ would not have appeared as a name. In fact, it's not a name at all. Rather, it's, it's a term in Greek that's translated from a Hebrew word, which means anointed. And from that word is where we get, in English, the term Messiah. And so Christ isn't a name at all. It's a title. And this is Matthew's way of introducing Jesus as who he truly is. It could be translated just as easily, Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah, And it's within that that the first hope is contained. And so we have to ask, what was the hope of the Messiah? And to do that, we'll need a little bit of history. See, centuries before Jesus was born, God spoke through the Jewish prophets. And they foretold of a time of judgment that would come upon the people, a scary time. And in that time, Israel's enemies would come and they would vanquish the people and carry them off into a foreign land where they would live as exiles. Well, sure enough, these events came to pass. They happened, and the people were taken away uh, into exile. But the story didn't end there. Just as the prophets had foretold that, they also spoke of a day that someone would come and that someone would come to bring what the people desperately needed and wanted, and which, from their perspective you can imagine, it would have seemed as if God had abandoned them completely, that the world was broken and, and nothing was right. They were longing for this first hope, which is restoration. They longed for restoration, and the prophets foretold someone who would come to bring it. One scholar puts it like this. He said that the Jewish people began to look for their anointed one whom God would one day send to set all things right. Everything, to be set right, that is the hope of restoration. And I want to suggest today that that hope isn't just back then for those people in that place. No, the hope of restoration is still in us, deep down. Now I want to say, if you are a teenager or young adult, could you raise your hand for a second? I'm just curious. I think it's amazing that you're here, but if you're a teenager or a young adult, or you know teenagers or young adults, then you might be familiar with the recent resurgence of the dystopian genre. This utopia, everything's perfect. Dystopia, everything's messed up, and so people are, young people are reading books about uh, how the world is broken. Classics like 1984 and Brave New World, but also newer series like the Hunger Games trilogy or uh, Divergent, and so. I read an article recently that talks about this recent rise in this genre, and it offers a few explanations. And the first is very simple. It's that young people today can look around them and see that the world is broken. It's not that hard. Just turn on the news or look in your your news app on your phone or even walk down the hallways of your school and just listen to the conversations going on around you. The world's not as it should be. It's not just young people. Adults, we see this. We live with it. We feel the effects of the brokenness of our world. And so somewhere deep down, we long for this restoration. And that's one of the reasons why this particular genre has come back. Well, this is the same hope that the people of Israel would have had back then, as they looked back at their Hebrew scriptures, they could decipher the words of the prophets who foretold that someone would in fact come who would save God's people, who would establish his kingdom on earth, and who would rule over it with righteousness. He was the one who would make everything right. He was the one who would bring their hoped for restoration. That is the Messiah. And so coming back to Matthew 1:1, when Matthew writes these words, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, you ask yourself, is it true? Is he the one who would fulfill this great hope? And you go on to discover the answer. Continue on in Matthew's gospel, and you will discover his emphatic yes in response to that question. Jesus has fulfilled this hope. How did he do it? He came to restore the world and fix what was broken, to take what was wrong and to make it right, to take what was sick and to make it healthy, to take what was shrouded in darkness and illuminate it in brilliant and beautiful light. That is what Jesus came to do. And through him, through his entire life and ministry, if you read about it in the Gospels, you'll see how he came to bring the hope of restoration. And let's make this personal for a second. Think back to your hope, the thing that you hold on to in your heart that you're hoping for. Are you looking to the world to, to fulfill that hope, are you looking to yourself to fulfill that hope? Have you given up hope? Or are we looking to Jesus Christ, the one through whom God has fulfilled all hope? He's there for us even today to restore our hopes. So that is the first hope. It's the hope of restoration. Now we're going to continue on to the second hope, and it's contained in the second name here, Matthew 1.1, the son of David. And this is the hope of a hero, a righteous leader who would, who would not let his people down. We're going to look at this together. David, if you know some of the history there, he was a prominent figure in the Old Testament. He began uh, as a lowly shepherd boy, but he killed a giant and he won the favor of the king. He eventually went on to become the king himself. And so he was sort of something like a phenom back in his day. But um, even though he had such great success, he, he was not perfect. He was deeply flawed and he sinned greatly. Uh, and he was, he was very far from perfect, not a perfect king. But nevertheless, God chose to be gracious to him. And he made several very significant promises to him. And you can find those in 2 Samuel chapter 7 or 1 Chronicles 17. I'm just going to summarize them for you here today. God promised that he would raise up one of David's own offspring as a king And that God would have a special relationship with this man, like that of a father to his son. And God said, this king's throne, my son, this king's throne would endure forever. That is what God promised to David. And then he also spoke to the Jewish prophets, revealing what it would look like when some of these things came true. We're going to look at one of those prophecies together. It comes from Jeremiah chapter 23, beginning in verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah saw what God told David would happen. He tells of a king who would rule in justice and righteousness. He would be fair and do what he knew was right. And he would never let his people down. His throne would endure forever. This is what Jeremiah saw, the hope of a hero. And now you may not like to use the term hero. I don't particularly like that word. But if we're honest, deep down inside of us, we also long for leaders who will lead us with justice and righteousness who will be fair, and who will do what is right. We want that, and we long for it. And sadly, when we look around us in the world, we don't see it. Just think back to the past year alone, as many prominent leaders have fallen because of their past abuses or corruptions. And no sphere of life has been immune to this. This happened in the business world, in the media, in the film industry, in politics, and in the church too. And I know some of us have let out long, painful sighs as yet another person who we thought was great. Turns out they weren't who they showed us who they were. We long for a righteous leader, a hero, who will not let us down. And we look in the world and we don't find it. And so when Matthew coming back to the opening line of the New Testament, when he declares that Jesus, the Messiah, is the rightful son of David, once again, for the Jewish people, if you hear this, your response is, is it true? Is he the one? Consider this for a second. This is Jesus' own words to his disciples at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. Just before he leaves them, he says this. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he goes on to say, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He will not let you down. Read Matthew's gospel and you will discover how Jesus is the true son of David, the one whom God promised would come to lead with justice and righteousness and never let the people down. And in that way, he has fulfilled this second great hope, the hope of a hero. So just to recap briefly. Jesus fulfills the hope of restoration. He fulfills the hope that we have for a hero. And now we're going to go on to the third hope contained in this opening line. And it's contained within the the, the third title here in Matthew 1.1. The Son of Abraham. And to understand this, we have to go all the way back to the Old Testament, to the very first book in the Bible, of Genesis chapter 12. And there we see that out of the whole world, God chose one man, Abram, whom he would later call Abraham, to bless and to bring from him a nation, a people who would be God's own people. And not only that, but through this people, he makes this promise. We're going to read it together. It's Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. will be blessed." Now what does that mean exactly? It could mean many things, but I want to submit to you today that the thing which this promise looks forward to is a hope that unifies and probably supersedes any other possible blessing that all of the families of the earth could receive, and it's the hope of harmony. And by harmony, I don't mean an overly romantic thing like sitting, sitting around a campfire singing kumbaya. That's not the kind of harmony I, don't, I think this means, but rather it's, it's taking harmony as a metaphor and applying it to humanity. So what is harmony essentially? In music, a harmony is when you have different notes that make different sounds that when played together, come together and enhance one another to make something that's altogether new and altogether beautiful. That's what harmony is. And so take that as a metaphor and apply it to humanity. The harmony that this promise looks forward to is when humanity, in all of its differences, chooses to come together and work together to make something new and something beautiful. That's what this promise looks forward to. That's what I mean by this kind of a harmony. And it may seem simplistic, but I want you to consider for a second that from our perspective as humans, all of us together, everything worthwhile comes from this kind of harmony. Think about it for example. Take peace. Peace. We all long for peace, right? And if you've been following some of the developments in the Middle East between Iran and the United States, you know that there is a pressing need for peace in the world. But how does that happen? It happens when people who are different choose to work together to bring about something new and beautiful. That's how peace would come about. Or consider something else. Consider water security. Okay, we take for granted in our country that we have clean drinking water in most places. But there are people all over the world who don't have clean water to drink. And so one of the ways that you can bring harmony in this world is by choosing to work with other people who are different from you, to raise money, to invest in other places, to bring clean water, like some of you are doing through the Team World Vision Run later this year. And that's the way that you'll bring harmony here on Earth. Or what about this? What about basic medical care? Something that we take for granted in America as well, but who most people in the world don't have. And this summer, some, some of us are going to go to Guatemala and work together to build a clinic for people who will have medical care for the first time. That is a way that we can bring harmony on earth. Even though we're different, we create this kind of beauty by working together. So that's what I, that's what I intend when I use the word harmony. And if, if, if it sounds too good to be true, it's not. And I want to explain why it's not. You see, Jesus had another disciple named John, and toward the end of his life, John saw a remarkable vision, something that no one else had ever seen. God gave him a glimpse into heaven, and he recorded what he saw in the book that we now know as Revelation. And here's what he saw. This is Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. I want to read it for us. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is what John sees, and what does he see? He sees a multitude of people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And I love that because we actually sang a line just like that in the second song we sang this morning. John sees that. And what does that look like to you? Because to me, that looks like Genesis 12.3. That looks like the the promise to Abraham fulfilled. That in his offspring, every nation, every family on earth would be blessed. And did you notice what they're doing? They're singing. They're worshiping God. They're using their voices together to make a literal harmony in heaven. I love that. But notice one other thing. Yes, they're worshiping God, but they're also worshiping the lamb. Now, who is the lamb? Well, if you read back in the Old Testament, you'll discover that God's people were required by their law to bring animal sacrifices. And like lambs, to atone for their sin or to pay for their sin, which would restore their standing before God. And sin is a big deal to God. If you read about it in the Bible, it's, it's choosing to do something which you know is wrong. It's choosing to violate what God has commanded. And in a sense, it's, it's rejecting his authority over you. A rebellion, even. I want to give some examples. For example, it's choosing to wound or to break down When you should have come to restore and that was our first hope this morning or it's choosing to feed one's lusts one's selfish desires instead of leading others selflessly with justice and righteousness and that was our second hope this morning it's the hope of a righteous leader a hero or it's choosing to label those who differ from us as other and fighting to keep them over there and us over here that is not good And our third hope today was the hope of harmony, bringing those with differences together to make something new and beautiful. Friends, sin is a big deal. It breaks our world. It breaks our relationships with each other. It breaks our relationship with God. And it must be dealt with. And so the sacrificial system back then was a way to temporarily atone for sin. The people could could restore their standing before God by bringing an animal like a lamb to be sacrificed but there was a problem. And it was that that system was temporary. Those sacrifices had to keep going and going day in and day out until finally one person came who would change that. And that person was Jesus. And as Matthew shows us, he came bringing the healing and renewal that we all need. And he came bringing the restoration that the world desperately needs. And he proved himself to be the Messiah. And he came in perfect righteousness, living the life that you and I are supposed to live but cannot live. And in that way, he fulfilled the second hope of being the son of David. And not only that, but he came as the one who would bring different people together from all over the world in harmony and be a blessing to the world. And in that way, he fulfilled the the, the, the hope of the son of Abraham. And the way that he did this is by becoming the lamb. You see, the sacrifices were all temporary, except for one. And that sacrifice was Jesus himself. He willingly laid down his own life for you and for me. He sacrificed himself to pay for our sins. Peter puts it like this in his first letter. He says, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Jesus ransomed you. He paid for you. And by his blood are your sins forgiven. And by his wounds are you healed. And by his sacrifice, do you have your life And the way that we receive this gift that he offers us, this forgiveness and this new life, is also the same way that the hope of Abraham is fulfilled. And it happens like this. When you put your faith in Jesus and choose to trust him, believing in your heart that he came to die for you and that he rose again to forgive you of your sins and to save you, then you receive this gift. You come to realize that you have sinned. And that your relationship with God has been broken and that you're completely incapable of making it right yourself. You need help. Well, thank God he's given the help. He's provided the way by sending his own son, Jesus, to take away the sin that separates. And because of the cross on which he died, it's gone. Your sin is gone forever. And if you trust him, forgiveness and salvation are yours today and they go on forever They never end. That is the promise. That is the hope that we have. And I pray today that each and every one of us would put our faith in Jesus, even right now, if you've never done that. I pray that would happen. And I pray that when you do, you become a part of the fulfillment of the hope of Abraham. And here's what I mean. The hope, the fulfillment of this hope comes about like this. You see, every person who trusts in Jesus is made brand new and is adopted into the family of God. And that means that you belong to him. And it also means that regardless of who you were, you now have a very specific purpose in life. And that purpose is this: to bring the harmony of heaven here to earth. And this is what I mean. You see, Jesus said this. He said that the greatest commandments were to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's everything you've got. And then he said, the second is like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we love God with everything we've got, and we love our neighbors as ourselves, that is an, imme- an immeasurably powerful good for the world. And through that, every family and every nation on earth will be blessed. And in that way, you bring the hope of harmony, the hope of heaven, which John saw, you bring it right here to the earth. That is the third hope, the hope of Abraham. Now, this is big stuff, but I have good news for you. This has already begun, and this is where we're gonna conclude together this morning. The blessing of bringing heaven's harmony here to the earth actually began when Jesus came, and I wanna show you how. We're gonna go back to Matthew chapter one one more time and take a look at this opening line. Here it is, the book of the genealogy. See, this phrase, book of the genealogy, is actually just two words in Greek. And the first word is the word biblos, which just means book. So for all of you bibliophiles, you lovers of books, that's where this comes from. And the second word is geneseos, which in the context of a genealogy like this is, it's translated genealogy or generations. But the literal meaning of that word, geneseos, is simply beginning or origin. And some commentators even translate it as Genesis, which is the the title of the first book in the Bible. And here's why this matters. A few centuries before Jesus was born, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek and scholars uh, put the original language into the Greek language, which would have been available at the time of Matthew. And those two words that he opens his text with are the same two words that Genesis 2.4 opens with. And now why does that matter? What is Genesis 2.4 all about? It is a heading. It's an introduction to the account of the creation of human beings. The very same words that those translators use to explain our beginning are the very same words that Matthew uses to explain Jesus' beginning and the new beginning that begins in him. It's already begun. And he points back as if to say, look and listen. There was a time when everything was right. The world wasn't broken. We didn't need the hope of restoration that we have now. There was a time like that. And not only that, but humanity had her hero because God was there with them and they had a relationship with him in the garden. They had that. And not only that, but everything was as it should be, working together the way God designed. So they didn't need the hope of the harmony that we need. But human beings sinned. And the brokenness, which makes us hope for restoration, entered in. And the corruption, which makes us hope for righteous leadership, entered in. And the discord and the division, which makes us hope for harmony, entered in. And so by opening like this, pointing back to creation, Matthew is effectively saying that in Jesus Christ, this new creation has begun. And this is the creation that will one day make everything right. And it will bring a new heavens and a new earth. And in that place, there will be no more hope for restoration. Everything will be just as God intends. There will be no more hope for righteous leadership because our hero, God himself, will be dwelling in our midst forever. He'll be right there There will be no more hope for harmony because people of every nation and tribe and tongue will be worshiping God together forever. Our praise will ever be on our lips. And even hope itself will cease to exist because there's no more need to hope. Every single hope will have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ in that place. That new creation has already begun, Matthew says. And so, what do we do with this? What do we do with this hope? I want to give you two things. And the first is very practical. It's this. I hope this morning that you've been able to see the power that a single line of Scripture can have. And I hope as you consider your summer plans, maybe you have a book you're planning to read, add one more book. Add this book. Add the Gospel of Matthew even. Continue where we started today. And listen, don't do it because Tom said so. Do it because God speaks through these words. And as you open your Bible, invite him, pray, and ask, God, would you speak to me through what I'm about to read? And he will. So that's the first thing. No matter where you're at, if you never read the Bible, if you read it every day, take a step forward. And the second application is this. Go back to the very first question we started with today, which is, what do you hope for? And I want to ask, do you hope for the new creation? Do you hope for the day when God, Christ returns and makes everything right because if you're his follower, if you put your faith in him, that is your hope and it's also your calling to be a part of bringing the harmony of heaven here on the earth beginning today. So love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself and bring some of that harmony here on the earth and if you are not there, if you haven't trusted Jesus or put your faith in him, then the the greatest hope of all of time is waiting for you to embrace it. So my plea with you is please to embrace this hope. And by embracing a hope, you're embracing a person, Jesus Christ, the one who is our living hope as we've sung. He is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Embrace him because he came to embrace you. Let's pray. God, we thank you That in your goodness, which surpasses our understanding, you saw fit to create a plan that would allow for the day that John saw when people from every nation and tribe and tongue were singing your praises in heaven and that those praises would never stop. We thank you for the incredible gift that we could actually participate in that worship service. We thank you for the gift that we could know you and serve you and love you. We thank you for the gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray today that you would help us to trust you, to put our faith in you, and to live each and every day as your people, your witnesses here on the earth to bring some of that harmony right here, to love others. Thank you for loving us. We pray now in Jesus' name.